you are listening to the CFP Podcast with your hosts, Chappie, Wax, and Sully. College football knowledge dropping in three, two, one. Happy day, college football fans. Ready for your football fix? We've got you covered for week six with a revisiting drive through week five, a settle of scores and cover four, and our promising peak at the big games in the upcoming week. I am Captain Chappie with my co-pilot Wax and Sully in the tower to help us with our picks later on. Now, we live the college football life, us passionados with a charm for chatter, and we turn it on Twitter. So please follow us on the Twitter. I'm at ChappieCFB. He is at CFFMWaxman. And Sully is at CFI underscore Sully. And if it's graphics, data, and resources you revere, wander to our website, fans, cfpcollegefootball.com. But enough commercial and cast. It's time to trot to the field, break the huddle, and start the opening drive. Into the end zone. That's touchdown on the game opening drive. So, Wax, I'm going to start off with really our, our main topic here in the opening drive, and that is... I'm getting irritated at the reminder that James Madison, who is not only undefeated right now, 4-0, they are looking to be as one of the more capable, one of the more dominant teams in the Sun Belt. And that's in the Sun Belt East, a conference, a division that we said was loaded with talented teams, and it still is. But right now they are playing almost flawless football, yet they are not allowed to win their conference division title. So they can't play in the Sunbelt conference championship this year, nor can they qualify for a bowl. And that's what really chaps me right now. And yes, I'm using full pun there. You know, you look at their schedule. Yeah. They play an 11 game schedule. And one of those 11 teams is FCS Norfolk state who they demolished, but they're playing a full conference slate. They're playing middle Tennessee who going into last Friday was three and one with some impressive victories. Granted, they beat an, uh, a power five team in Miami on the road and they d- destroyed them as we talked about last week on our show. They also play ACC team Louisville on the road. So they're playing 10 power or 10 uh, FBS teams on their schedule. And I don't get it why they have to have this transition year to me if you're going to have a probationary transition year the way it used to be wax was you have a team that is playing half of their games against fbs teams and then the other half against fcs to kind of get it so that they're not beat up and they're banged up they're they're kind of transitioning into the upper level as the name suggests well james madison they were dominant at the fcs level and they jump in head first here with a full slate of conference games. It's not a padded schedule. And again, they're in one of the most competitive divisions in all of college football, power five or G five, however you want to look at it. And it bothers me that this could potentially be a team that wins double digit games, but has to stay home. And I could see maybe not having them eligible for the conference championship in the Sun Belt, but why not let them play in a bowl game. You mean to tell me that it makes more sense to have a seven and five or six and six team from a lower tier power five division, or even a, uh, a group of five school 
if, if you win your games, especially if you win. Now, I could see if they had a provision and said, OK, if, if James Madison, their first year in FBS football, if they win eight or more games, that's the asterisk. Then they can make postseason play. But if they don't win those eight games, you lay it out in front. But just to say that they are completely ineligible, that bothers me to no end. Your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. What they used to do when a team was making the transition from a lower level, 1AA or FCS, is in some cases it took two full years, but they were automatically thrown in with the independents. So they were not beholden to a conference. I mean, there weren't conference championship games a lot of the time. They weren't even a thing yet, but... They didn't have to worry about, well, we're not eligible for the conference title. They could be eligible for a bowl right away, though, if they won the requisite number of games. So I actually think that as nice as it's been to see James Madison in Sunbelt play, it might have benefited them more to just have that same old rule. You're coming over. You're an independent your first year. So you can do a little bit of the smattering of the FCS schedule and the smattering of the FBS schedule. Then in year two, you join your conference and you play a regular schedule like everyone else. I look, Jacksonville State is coming up next year along with Sam Houston State. Jacksonville State opens with Kennesaw, but then they play Eastern Michigan and South Carolina. And I assume the rest of whatever Conference USA is going to have. So I don't believe they're going to be playing any other FCS team. So they're going to be right into the fire too. And I would assume unless Conference USA changes its rule um, that they probably are going to be ineligible for the conference title. So I don't like it either. I think if your team is worthy enough, you should be able to be in. But I also think they should revisit and say, you know what? If you're making the transition up, year one, you're an independent. So you don't have to worry about any conference stuff. You can play whoever you want. And then the next year you go to your conference and you're eligible for the league title at that point. So that's, that's what I would do. But James Madison, you're right, has been one of the more pleasant surprises because teams typically coming up, even the really good ones like JMU tend to struggle. They go six and six because they've played some teams that they don't normally face all the time. But I mean, their defense, especially, I mean, Taurus Jones and Jalen Walker, their linebackers, two of the most unsung players in the country that people probably don't know about, but um, our buddy uh, Brian Freemau at uh, BCF Toys, if you look at the opponent-adjusted numbers for James Madison, on defensive yards per play, they're first in the country. Yep. And they actually have been even good when teams have had um, to get – just four yards plus on plays, they, they're they only fourth in that. I mean, they're behind Minnesota, Michigan, and Alabama, some pretty good defenses. So usually it's because of the size, the depth, the attrition, that they're just not used to that because they've been so long playing FCS that it catches up with them. Well, I don't know that's going to catch up with James Madison. They've already beaten App State. and On the road. On the road. So they could be looking at a – 10 and 0, 10 and 1, 11 and 0, and it would be a shame that they're sitting at home for that, especially when some of these bowls are crying out for teams that are better than 6 and 6. Why yeah. not throw a, a, an 11 and 0 James Madison in there against maybe like a mid-level Pac-12 or a mid-level uh, Big 12 and see how they do. That sure. I think would be a fun fun bowl game to see. Yeah, and and 
check out this scenario. So November 26th, they play what could be a ranked Coastal Carolina team. If the Chanticleers beat Marshall, they beat App State, chances are they're going to be ranked, If especially if they're undefeated going into that final weekend. James Madison might have only one loss at that point, potentially on the road against Louisville. But again, that might be a Louisville team that could be with an interim head coach. Who knows if Scott Satterfield is going to keep his job um, up at that point. So let's just say, let's play best case scenario. You have undefeated James Madison against undefeated Coastal Carolina. Possibly both teams are ranked. And if JMU wins that game, even if they have one loss, but if they knock off a ranked Coastal Carolina team, a Coastal team that for all intents and purposes, could go on to win the Sunbelt Championship and be, again, a ranked football team at the end of the year, and they're sitting at home. I I really wonder, and I'd have to dig into this, but I wonder if JMU could petition the NCAA and try and get some sort of waiver. Um, and, And even if they have to throw it to the athletic directors and the conference commissioners for all the conferences in college football, but if I am the commissioner of the Mountain West, of the AAC, Heck, even if I'm the commissioner of the Big Ten, the the Pac-12, and this is put in front of me by the NCAA saying, would you have a problem with James Madison being eligible for a postseason bowl? Absolutely not. And I think unless you have some personal uh, unrequited uh, vendetta against James Madison, in which case, shame on you, and you shouldn't be in your position anyway, I really don't see there with anybody having a problem with James Madison making it to a bowl, especially if they are a 9-10 win team this year. Well, and what if the Sun Belt doesn't have enough uh, bids to to get their allotment? Sure, yeah. So and then, I mean, then you got to go wild card and go into another one of the leagues that has like an or, and that's less money for the conference just because you have kind of an antiquated rule. So right. Yeah, let's say uh, hypothetically you have a seven and five Marshall team who loses to James Madison, but they make it to a uh, a Sun Belt Bowl tie-in over the Dukes, who beat them on the field and might have almost double the wins that they earned in the same season. So yeah, it just doesn't make sense to me, and I, and I really hope that something gets done about this. I would love to see that happen this year, and it seems like they're starting to get a lot of media love as well. So they could be that group of five darling that a lot of people will latch onto this year and maybe it gains enough steam to where you know after the the first few college football playoff rankings come out and they're talking about well what about James Madison they're you know and that's another question I have would they potentially be ranked in the college football playoff rankings knowing that they're not eligible for postseason if that happens that might even give them more leverage and more weight to uh, petition the NCAA to give them that eligibility this year granted how they're doing I agree. So, food for thought. I know that that's something that you would enjoy, Wax, because you and I are group of five aficionados here. We we love those conferences. We love those teams. And we love to give them light anytime we can. So NCAA, do the right thing. Give some love to the Dukes of James Madison. All right. We are going to transition into conference calls here. So Wax and I are going to run around the country and we're going to hit all the power five conferences. And as we always do, we're going to end with uh, what we consider sometimes the best for last, our group of five notes. So let's start with the SEC Wax, two ranked versus ranked matchups. You had number two, Alabama traveling to Fayetteville 
and they they beat the Arkansas Razorbacks handily. It, it got close there for a little bit. It got a little bit hairy, but then Jameer Gibbs and Jalen Milrow stepped on the field and and took over Jalen Gibbs or Jameer Gibbs. Eleven carries, two hundred and four. Or I'm sorry, uh, he averaged eleven yards per carry. He had two hundred and four yards rushing, two long touchdowns. Milrow stepped in and really did some great things with his legs. He had a couple long runs, uh, so the the tides stay unbeaten and they leapfrog the previously number one Georgia Bulldogs who had some troubles with Missouri just a game full of field goals but pretty interesting ones Harrison Mevis had I think uh, multiple 50-yard bombs that he put between the uprights which is a head scratcher because he couldn't hit a uh, a sub 20-yarder last week against Auburn to try and give them the win at, at the end of regulation but he comes up big in a loss against the the dogs Another ranked versus ranked, number 14, Ole Miss, took down number seven, Kentucky, out in um, in Vaught-Hemingway Stadium. So, you know, but even with that, Lane Kiffin says, you know, he wasn't satisfied. There's still work to do. Um, Mississippi State handled Texas A&M. Their defense pressured uh, their quarterbacks, knocked Max Johnson out of the game, and really since then, uh, A&M really had no shot because Haynes King came in and continued to struggle throwing the ball. He had two interceptions where his counterpart, uh, Will Rogers, 329 yards passing, three touchdowns, zero interceptions. And what's most impressive, and, and I'm really kind of surprised this early on, at how much Mike Leach is running the football. So they had 145 yards rushing, which is astronomical relative to what Mike Leach air raid offenses are, are usually putting up. So I think that might be the difference. And that's a big reason why the Bulldogs are now four and one and, um, you know, really getting some recognition in that sec West. Uh, there are four undefeated teams in the sec. All of them are in the top 10, Bama one, Georgia two, Tennessee eight, and Ole Miss is now at nine. Again, all four of those teams are unblemished so far. And then you've got three sec teams at four and one, all, of those teams are ranked 13 Kentucky, 23 Mississippi State, and 25 LSU. Uh, some injury notes, Bryce Young sounds like he'll be okay. Uh, Nick Saban in his postgame presser kind of alluded to the idea that he's had some of these shoulder issues before, but um, he's going to be day-to-day, but it sounds like he, he'll be okay. Um, I'm curious to see if he's going to start in the A&M game. Given the way those two teams are performing right now, I don't think it hurts to start Jalen Milrow. And then, you know, bring in Bryce if he's needed. So uh, we'll, we'll keep an eye on that. LSU, a very scary injury. Seven Banks, the Ohio State transfer, on the opening kickoff. Um, he's carted off the field. He was responsive, but hardly moving. It says that he suffered a bruised spine. He's out five to six weeks. But the way that things looked on the field, I think that might be pushing it really uh, soon. So, you know, maybe he could be back for a, a postseason bowl game. But, you know, given the severity of how that looked, I don't know that that's something that uh, the young man, Seven Banks, wants to push, nor does the, the LSU coaching staff. Staying in the SEC West, uh, Auburn defensive end Iku Liotta, who was a sack machine the last two years, he is now out for the season with a torn pectoral. He's going to have to have surgery on that. It was documented earlier last week that, Third-string quarterback, Zach Calzada, the transfer from Texas A&M. He's done for the year with shoulder surgery. At Tennessee, defensive back Warren Burrell, gone for the year. And wide receiver Cedric Tillman, 
seems like he's going to be out for a few more weeks as he's recovering from ankle surgery, which Tennessee coaches say he had that surgery to help expedite his recovery so they could have him back by the, uh, by the end of the season. And then Georgia D-tackle D- Jalen Carter out one to two weeks. They've got Auburn this week. They've got Vandy the next week. So it sounds like that timetable is going to have him ready for the world's largest outdoor cocktail party against the Florida Gators. So that's what's going on in the SEC, Wax. Let's jump to the Big Ten. And we had some news uh, breaking on Sunday. So tell us what's going on in that conference. Yeah, a little bit. We touched on it a little bit last week that we had maybe heard a little bit in the wind and we kind of poo-pooed it. And I guess we were proven wrong that uh, Wisconsin decided to cut ties with Paul Christ, um, who, believe it or not, had uh, 67 wins in his time in Madison and uh, really had given them a pretty good sustained run of success. Now, the last three years, it's been a little more up and down. And I do know that a lot of fans were kind of uh, scratching their heads. Chris is an offensive guy, hasn't gotten anything out of Graham Mertz, who came there as a five-star recruit, yeah. had a really good first game, and then really has done nothing. And folks are wondering, why can't the Wisconsin offense be dynamic? It's always the big burly running back and the big offensive line manhandling people. Well, when you get behind, that's not conducive to coming back. So why can't you get something out of the quarterback? He also is definitely known as not a guy – who really schmoozes with the boosters, which I don't like it either. But if you're going to be a coach in this day and age, you got to acquiesce to those folks. And he's kind of just sort of ho-hum on recruiting. They're, for the success that they've had, I don't think that their recruiting has, has really lived up to what it should. Um, so, and, and if you look at it, they really – had been had they gotten a reputation as being a bit of a development factory because they're always putting offensive linemen in the league, they yep. put a lot of defensive backs in the league. But you're really looking at the offensive line this year and in the secondary, and it's like who's going to the NFL? Maybe Jay Shaw. Well, he came from UCLA. So I mean, now the linebacker certainly Herbig is obviously very good and he'll be a pro. Um I just think that the AD thought that the program had gotten stagnant and maybe it has, but I've always said with these programs that are below the top tier, be careful what you wish for. If you think you're going to get to that level, because sometimes it isn't what you think it is. I always hearken back to my favorite Bill Mallory had Indiana as a seven, eight win team pretty much uh, after the beginning of his Indiana tenure and folks said, Oh, he's got a seven or eight, a better guy can get us over the hump. No, they can't. We had the good season from Tom Allen a couple years ago, and he's got the Hoosiers struggling again, and maybe he's a little bit back on the hot seat. So teams need to be a little judicious, I think, when they're when they're cutting people loose. Um, moving on, believe it or not, you've got a big matchup this week between two of the I teams. If you would have if you would have told people at the beginning of the season when Illinois and Iowa play that it would be a matchup of the top two defenses in the league, I think that that you could have you would have looked at them silly. Iowa people knew about. I don't think people knew that Illinois was going to have such a, a good defense. But in terms of a yards per play basis, uh, Illinois is actually first in the league in uh, total defense. Uh, or they're second, 3.81, Iowa's 3.74. Uh, 
So, um, so, so you're going to probably get the under, especially with Illinois' uh, offensive woes. And last but not least, Ohio State beat Rutgers again last week, ninth time in a row, and they scored 49 points in nine straight games against Rutgers. That's the longest streak by any one team versus a single opponent in the AP poll era. So wow. they want to play Rutgers every week. Yeah, just touching real quick on Paul Christ. Um, last five years, 13 and one, Big Ten title appearance. Eight and five, 10 and four, Big Ten title appearance. Four and three in a wacky COVID year, nine and four last season. And, you know, you talked about the, the AD, Chris McIntosh. He obviously did not hire Paul Christ. And, and you see this a lot when you have a new AD come in with a coach that's already there, regardless of how successful they are, the moment that they start to get pushed back and they start to hear the groans. I mean, the Wisconsin fans were booing that team as they trotted with their heads down into the locker room. And so maybe the boos got a little bit too loud for, for young Chris McIntosh to, to deal with. And maybe, you know, when he got there, he, he already had it in his sights that Jim Leonard is my guy. What can I do to, to get him there? And this may have been the time to strike. Uh, two, talking rushing about, yards. two rushing yards for yeah, Wisconsin. For the entire game, not for a half, not for a quarter, not for a drive, the entire game. Yeah. I, I, I would love to know the last time that a Wisconsin offense um, post-1993 or post-1992 really has had that low of an output. And, you know, talking about Illinois, even uh, my buddy Big Kurt from uh, the Eyes on Big podcast, which is a really good Big Ten podcast, um, he was even saying that, you know, at the beginning of the year, he figured the Illinois defense would be pretty good, but even the most devout Illinois fans, I don't think, expected their, their defense to be this dominant so far. They've only given up 42 points all season. So um, kudos to the Illini there. And that's coming from a Northwestern guy here. Um, okay, moving out to the Pac-12. So we had one undefeated versus undefeated game. It was a very interesting and very entertaining game last Friday night where UCLA hosted the Washington Huskies. It was the Huskies' first road game of the year, and the Bruins took them down. They knocked off the 15th-ranked Huskies, so now UCLA is ranked 18th in the AP poll at a 5-0 and record. There were two 3-1 um, and versus 3-1 and games, so you had 12th-ranked Utah hosting Oregon State. Oregon State coming off that near-upset victory at home against USC. Uh, the, the Utah Utes really clamped down in the red zone. Oregon State had five trips in the red zone and had zero touchdowns to show for it and threw two picks in the end zone. One was returned almost all the way. The other one, Clark Phillips was uh, the the benefactor of three total interceptions for that Utah defense. So Utah ran away with it in the second half. You also had Washington State beating Cal at home. So both those teams were 3-1 and one going into that game. The Cougars now 4-1. and one. Very quiet four and one with a, a a pretty good defense, and then you had five Pac-12 teams score forty points in their contest. So again, it's a conference that is putting up points, especially at Arizona. Jaden Delora had six touchdown passes, four hundred eighty-four yards passing, and zero ints against the lowly Colorado Buffaloes. Which segues to my next spot, Carl Durrell. Sayonara, um, you know, with no disrespect to Carl Durrell. Um, they had a uh, kind of an anomaly of a season in an anomaly season of the 2020 COVID year where Colorado in a very shortened season, I think they were what uh, four and one in the regular season there. 
that really was the lone bright spot for Durrell. So they cut ties with him. They also let go of defensive coordinator Chris Wilson. And offensive coordinator Mike Sanford was promoted to interim coach. And I saw some interesting tweets from Minnesota fans saying, you just made yourself worse by promoting Mike Sanford. Now, he was previously a head coach at Western Kentucky, but has been noted for um, not being the greatest or most effective offensive coordinator in his various stops. So we'll see how they end up. Um, I've seen some interesting names for Colorado potential coaches. Uh, One that strikes me as very interesting is Troy Calhoun, who's currently at Air Force. I've always thought that if you want to really try and um, turn things around in a way that's going to wreak some havoc with your opposition, it might be smart to go with a triple option type approach. And so, you know, Colorado has proven that they've tried the spread. They've tried being run heavy and that doesn't seem to work. So if you go triple option and force teams to have a separate uh, game plan and strategy where you basically have to practice that every practice during the off season, during spring practice and during the season. So you're ready for it when you come to play them. I think that's interesting. Other names thrown out there, Brian Harson, assuming that he doesn't last at um, Auburn coming back to the, the Rocky mountain area, Bronco Mendenhall, former coach at BYU in Virginia. If he's interested uh, Eric Bieniemy, who was a, a star player there, he's the current offensive coordinator with the Kansas City Chiefs. It'll be interesting to see if if he wants to come back, if they give him that shot. Um, and I'm going to throw out the name Chris Peterson. I wonder if he would be willing to come back and coach at a lower profile program like Colorado. He was obviously successful at Boise State. Um, he was also successful at Washington, but he said that the job just became to be way too much. I think. A situation like this, he comes in at Colorado. They just want him to win games. They don't necessarily expect him to win championships year after year like they did at Boise in the Mountain West and like they did at Washington in the Pac-12. So I'm, I'm curious to see if he would be interested. So he, he, could, he could certainly be a bridge coach to, to the next person, but he would also be following the Dan Hawkins career plan who went from Boise State to Colorado. Yeah. So, so Chris could, could be the second one. Here's another name to throw out. Ricky Ronnie, he grew up in Colorado, played high school there, and led all Colorado quarterbacks in the state with over 3,000 yards as a senior at Bear Creek High School in Lakewood. He's 42. He's young. Obviously, he comes from Penn State, so he's got uh, Power 5 credibility. He's also been at Kansas State, and he's more an offensive guy, and Colorado's offense has just been beyond atrocious, so maybe... He might be somebody, if they think outside the box, doesn't have ties to the school, but has ties to the state. Maybe he wants to go back out west and says, you know what, given a full budget, maybe I can do something. Because, I mean, the cards are kind of stacked against him at at Old Dominion. Sure, they could turn into a decent team in the Sun Belt. I don't know if they're going to get past Marshall, JMU, App State, those teams. So so that might be one to kind of file away um, a little bit. Um, yeah, and and staying uh, outside the box real quick here, Wax, before you get to the ACC, uh, my guy Gary Barnett, he does radio broadcasts for the for the Buffaloes or Rick Neuheisel. I know that those guys are kind of up there in age, but if you're looking for somebody to, you know, kind of Mac Brown and come back for a couple years and maybe groom the next Colorado head coach, uh, just saying, they've had success there. So, uh, but we don't want to get too far on a tangent. We're uh, We're coming up against a break here. So let's get to the ACC, Wax. What's going on there? Um, in the ACC, there are a couple of uh, interesting um, injury items. 
Zion Nelson for Miami, their their All-America caliber linebacker, he is questionable in their game against North Carolina for Saturday. He ended up with a bit of a knee injury. North Carolina has actually won um, six of the five of the last seven and two of the last three in Miami, and they put up 62 and 42. Now, I know that Zion Nelson wouldn't help the Miami defense, but he would give a little bit of stability to an offense that has really looked out of sorts um, in, in the last few weeks. And staying in that same game, uh, North Carolina's Sebastian Cheeks is out for the season um, with a shoulder problem. So you've got w- dueling injuries in those games. Um, the big game between Clemson and North Carolina State, it did have a lot of drama. It was close most of the way. Clemson, of course, pulled away and ended up pushing its home winning streak to 37 games, which ties Florida State for the longest streak in ACC history. Uh, they did it from 95 to 2001. And Clemson is one of six teams that has scored in the red zone 100% of the time this year, either a field goal or or a touchdown. Ohio State and Tennessee have also done it. So Clemson, uh, I think people were thinking maybe Wake or or North Carolina State could be their trip-ups. They've gotten past the two of them. It certainly wouldn't be any surprise now if uh, Clemson ended up being undefeated. Yeah. um, And, you know, they're, they're, they're doing the things that they're needed to do. And that's what wins championships, right, Wax? So let's go to the Big 12. We had one ranked versus ranked number nine Ohio, or Oklahoma State, sorry, uh, at number 16, Baylor. The, the Cowboys had a big lead at halftime. Baylor tried to make a comeback in the third quarter, but they just couldn't get over that hump at the end. couple uh, untimely interceptions thrown by Blake Shapin, but certainly timely for the, the Pokes defense. You had number 25, Kansas State, beat a competitive and better than perceived Texas Tech team. So the Wildcats are now up to four and one and TCU dominated. And I put that in all caps dominated number 18, Oklahoma. Um, the, the Horn Frogs have a, um, you know, have they're they're rolling. They are an undefeated big 12 team. In fact, one of only two undefeated teams in the big 12, Kansas being the other one, I'm sorry, three uh, Oklahoma state. And, and I kind of, uh, it was a Freudian slip there because Oklahoma state is quietly, ranked number seven, but they really haven't impressed me that much. And I know that they just beat a ranked BYU team or I'm sorry, ranked Baylor team, but that Baylor team, um, they kind of looked flat and, you know, with, with a little bit of a pulse in the third quarter, they just couldn't get over that hump like previous Baylor teams have done. So you've got three undefeateds. Then you've got Kansas state ranked 20 at four and one. And how's this of 10 teams, only one with a losing record. And that's two and three West Virginia. But you look at their their numbers, they've scored 191 points, given up 148. So it's not like they're a team with a losing record that um, has an even margin of victory. They, they've uh, put up 40, uh, 43 more points than their opposition has scored on them. So even that team, I, I really don't look at the Big 12 with any, quote unquote, bad teams. So um, they may not have an elite team, but they certainly don't have any bad teams. And I can look around the rest of the Power Five and name a couple of bad-looking teams in the Big Ten, Pac-12, ACC, and SEC. Um, OU, I'm sorry, go ahead, Wex. 
that will get back to the conversation. How do you rank best conferences? Because I tend to think top to bottom, the Big 12 may be the best because of what you said. No bad teams. Right. But some people say if you don't have a team in the CFP uh, d- talk, then maybe you're not the best. So I, yeah. that's going to kind of unfold as the as the season progresses. Yep, and, and I, I agree with you. I, I'd rather have a conference with no bad teams than a conference with one or two elite teams and then a bunch of mediocres and then a handful of bad teams. So speaking of bad, Oklahoma has not, has, has not been good, that's for sure, on defense. They've yielded 96 points over the last two weeks under new head coach and defensive guru Brent Venables. Um, injuries of note, really just one, C.J. Donaldson, freshman running back who's listed as a tight end, but I think that they've permanently moved him to running back now, at least if they're smart, which Graham Harrell is the offensive coordinator. He is going to be out this week against Baylor. And then uh, last on the Big 12, obviously Lance Leipold, head coach of Kansas. His name is swirling around a lot of open positions or potentially open positions. And when asked about, you know, what do you think of, of these rumors? His quote is, I'm happy where my feet are right now, and I'm happy to be at Kansas, which wax, you can't have a more political, ambiguous response. So, yeah, currently today, I like where I'm at. But tomorrow, there may be dollar signs that are going to sway me in opportunity and resources and boosters and uh, recruiting portals that are going to sway me to another spot. So I might be happier in another place tomorrow, but right now I'm happy at Kansas. So you really can't get uh, any more neutral than that, Wax. Let's finish up with the, the group of five. We had a couple of uh, historic performances in the group of five uh, this week. We had, for the first time in, in FBS history, Kent State had a 240-yard rusher and a 240-yard receiver, yep. Marquez Cooper and Dante Cephas, uh, in an overtime win over Ohio. And in all of the years of college football, the Golden Flashes are the first team in history to be able to achieve that. So kudos yep. to Kent. Their offense is starting to get going. Sean Lewis is another coach who might be on the short list for a few of these jobs because of his offense. Um, and for the second straight week, Frank Harris set the UTSA school record for passing yards in a game. He threw for 414 in a win over Middle Tennessee. It's the first 400-yard passing game in the short history of UTSA football. And uh, people people know how much you and I love Frank Harris and love the Roadrunners. So it's Maybe. nice him evolving as a passer because when he first came there, he liked to kind of run around. But he's really honed, focused on passing the ball and has really become a pretty adept thrower of the football. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I mean, he's one of the nation's leaders in total offense, and it's mostly because of his arm, but he's also great at extending a play. And and I think that's important to note, because a lot of times people will look at an a, a athletic quarterback and say, well, he can scramble, he can run. But if you can run, but you're not moving the chains or you're not, um, you know, helping your offense progress, you're just kind of escaping your own harm. That's not nearly as, as effective as somebody who can extend the play, stay behind the line of scrimmage and work the scramble drill, hit his receivers downfield, because that's going to move the chains. That's going to build your, your momentum and that's going to eventually put points on the board. And that's ultimately what college football amounts to when you're talking success. So, yeah, great points on Frank Harris there. And yeah, Sean Lewis. I know that he was an assistant at Wisconsin. He played at Wisconsin as well. So his name is on that Wisconsin list. But I I also would give him a a legitimate shot out at Colorado, given the fact that 
in that Pac-12 conference, they like to have offenses that can score points, and he's proven that he certainly can do that. All right, well, the past is the past, and what's done is done, but we move ahead and forecast the future with our pick segment coming soon. But when we come back, we give you our stance on a set of topics and cover four. It's halftime here on the CFP Podcast, starting the third when we come back. And welcome back to the second half of the CFP podcast. Again, this is Chappie with my co-host Wax. We'll be joined by Sully in our pick segment. But right now, we're going to get to one of the favorite segments, a staple here on the CFP podcast. This is Cover 4. Cover 4. I told you guys, one of my favorites. I love it. There's so much to go into it. So what we do, we're going to give you four questions and Wax and I are going to roll out our thoughts on these topics as they are pertinent this week and in the surrounding weeks. So starting with question number one, Wax, it's fall. You know, we're into October now, thank goodness. And so I'm not a fan of it, but people seem to love the pumpkin spice lattes. And so I thought we would roll that into our cover four segment. So we're going to give a pumpkin, a spice, and a latte, which actually is going to be late. We're going to talk about a team that might be late to the party starting out a little slow, but we're going to start with the pumpkin. So going with the Cinderella theme, this is a team that we think has started hot, but are likely to come back down to earth. It's not sustainable. So let's start with you. Who's a team that is undefeated or one loss right now, maybe ranked pretty high, but you don't see them as high as we roll into the second half of the season, Wex. I think you have to go with the USC Trojans. Obviously, they have looked really good right now. Caleb Williams doing his thing. The offense putting up a lot of points. Lincoln Riley certainly has got the fan base energized. Um, And their defense has been opportunistic. It hasn't been good, but they lead the country in turnover margin. And I'm not sure that that's sustainable. I mean, if you're winning games every week by getting a short field, two, three times a game. I just think that you're really flirting with disaster and playing with fire a little bit. What happens if there's a game where you have none and you have to generate offense? Now, offense really isn't their problem, though. Stopping people has been their problem. Uh, Their defense is giving up uh, six yards per play, which is in the 80s. They're also not very good offensively in red zone scoring and late in the season when you're playing teams that are familiar with you in the league you're not going to be able to hit all these explosive plays you're going to have to grind it out you're going to get inside the 20 you're going to need to score touchdowns rather than field goals so i think you see usc especially if you look at their schedule they've got a not an easy one this week at home against um against wazoo and then they go to utah and then they've got UCLA and maybe a Notre Dame team that's hitting its stride at the end of the year. So uh, they've, they've still got some landmines. And I think that in a couple of weeks, we probably won't be thinking too much about them as a CFP contender, what we do right now. Yeah, I think that's a good pick. I mean, I still have them. They're my pick to win the Pac-12 at the beginning of the year. So selfishly, I hope that I'm on with that and, and they they maintain that. But we're learning that the Pac-12 is a, a loaded conference right now, at least at the top. And, um, you know, it'll be it'll – be, they'll have their work cut out for them uh, much more than we thought at the beginning of the season. I'm going to go down to the bayou and go with the LSU Tigers. Now, 
they are four and one. They're currently ranked number 25, but there's a lot of people who were kind of scratching their head, raising their eyebrows, like really number 25 LSU. And, you know, looking at their scores, they, they open up with a one point loss on a, uh, on a botched extra point against Florida state. Um, then they come back and they blow out Southern at home as they should. They, they beat Mississippi state with a strong second half and really kind of a, um, you know, the Bulldogs didn't come out to play in that second half as it seemed. Then they, they beat New Mexico at home 38, nothing, but you know, Mexico, New Mexico has not played great defense this year. They played respectable, but a mountain West team that really hasn't made it to a bowl in forever coming to the Bayou to play at night, you're expected to win that game. And then they had to score 21 unanswered points after being down 17, nothing to an Auburn team that was supposedly going to fire their coach the week before an Auburn team that has not really looked that impressive offensively. And you get punched in the mouth real early. Granted it was at Jordan Hare stadium, but nonetheless, they're a four and one team that I'm not sold on their quarterback. I don't think that that's sustainable. Jaden Daniels is getting more and more banged up as the weeks go by and he's their leading rusher right now. So they don't have a run game to speak of. Even John Emery, who's now back from suspension, he hasn't really thrilled yet. Amani Goodwin is injured. They're, they're backup running back. So, and, and not to mention Garrett Dellinger, one of their offensive linemen is going to be out for a while. So, you know, while I, I respect Brian Kelly and I think that he is a winning coach and I see this being like an eight and four type team, I don't think that this success early on is sustainable, especially when you look at the schedule they've got to play coming up. So they've got Tennessee this weekend at Florida, Ole Miss at home, a bye, and then, oh, here comes Alabama. Then you've got to travel to Arkansas, who's better and a better team than their record suggests. And then you end up the year at Texas A&M in a game where Jimbo might – that might be a must win game for Jimbo Fisher and playing that at home in front of all those gigam fans. So I think that LSU is, is on pace to have a respectable season, but if some tiger fans are thinking that they can legitimately compete for the sec West, I don't see that happening. In fact, I would be surprised if they finish in the top three there. So LSU is my pumpkin team. All right, moving on to question number two. So let's get to the spice. Now this is a team that is good but they add a little flavor. So maybe they have an offensive or defensive player who's an MVP type caliber player for their conference, maybe even a Heisman or award candidate, or maybe they've got a coach that is really um, outperforming expectations. So I'm going to go with Ohio state. They're my spice team. When you look at it on offense, they've got a Heisman quarterback. They've got two stud running backs, Travion Henderson and Mayan Williams with Henderson out last week. Mayan Williams rushes for, uh, what almost uh, over 200 yards wax. Um, yeah. I mean, he, he put up some, some huge numbers and I know it was Rutgers, but you know, you, you don't see people running for 200 yards against, um, you know, group of five or even FCS defenses, let alone a big 10 school like Rutgers and Greg Schiano, who, who coaches his team to put up a fight um, both figuratively and sometimes literally. Yeah. And then no matter who's healthy at running or at wide receiver, they've got somebody to step up. So JSN went down, Marvin Harrison steps up, Emeka Agbuka steps up, then he goes down and you've got Cade Stover at tight end. You've got Julian Fleming uh, in the works. I mean, so Brian Hartline, a great wide receiver coach, he just, that's a factory there and that's no secret, but they just have star power after star power. And that's why Ohio State, 
I think they could lose one game this year and still be a legitimate candidate to make the CFP. And it actually might help them if they don't have to play in the Big Ten Championship. If they suffer a loss, let's say, to uh, Penn State out in Happy Valley, then they come back and beat what could be a highly ranked Michigan team. And Penn State plays in the Big Ten title game and Ohio State doesn't have to, that might be to their credit. So Ohio State, the Buckeyes are my spice team this year. Wax, who do you got? I'm going to go with the somewhat surprising UCLA Bruins. Um, they obviously have a tough one this week against Utah, but I don't think anyone expected them to be undefeated by this point. In fact, I think at the beginning of the year, Chip Kelly was one of the coaches who was sort of on uh, unemployment watch, and all they've done is have one of the better offenses in the country with uh, Dorian Thompson Robinson. He's been the last couple of weeks has been playing as well as any quarterback in the country. He certainly looks like he's much more confident and he's not making the silly mistakes that he's been making the last uh, previous seasons. So um, I think that you see that, that, that he's doing it offensively. And then uh, Lytow Latou leads the pack 12 in sacks with six and their defense, while it's not flashy, it's good enough and it's getting the job done. And then Chip Kelly is a guy who uh, just by his name alone and the success he had at Oregon is a guy who's always going to be in the spotlight. So I think UCLA is a team um, that uh, to this point has been uh, surprising. They've also got guys on each side of the ball and they're in Hollywood. So they're, they're going to be they're kind of sharing the headlines with USC, but they are getting some notoriety just because of um, it. Everything's big in Hollywood there, and UCLA is having a big season right now. Yeah, and and I think their style of defense is almost the perfect recipe to give USC some fits. And you know, I mean, it's obviously a rivalry game, and and Chip Kelly wants to prove that you know just because Lincoln Riley is the hot new coach on the block doesn't necessarily mean that he's got the given advantage. So I like that pick for UCLA wax. All right. Question three, our latte. Now we're just really mispronouncing the word late. So we're going to go with a team that has started a little slow or late to start um, the year, but they're likely to heat up, especially as they get into conference play. So who's your late bloomer um, that we can expect to have a pretty good end of the season wax. Um, I'm going to go a little unconventional and say the Western Kentucky Hilltoppers. They're three and two right now. I think people thought that they would be, if not at the top of Conference USA, right near it. But you look at their losses. They lost in, to Indiana by three points just yep. because of a couple of late miscues. They didn't play that game badly. And then they lost to Troy in a game that was pretty odd, the, the parts of it I saw, that game didn't really seem to have much of a feel to it. They still scored 27 points, and Troy is very good. So yeah. they play UTSA this week, and then they go to Middle Tennessee State, but they get UAB at home, and then they finish with Charlotte, Rice. Yeah, Rice is improving, but they're not great. And Florida Atlantic, oh, they get Auburn in there, and maybe Auburn has smashed in by that time. So maybe they give Auburn some fits. Austin Reed might be the best quarterback people don't know about. He's completing over 70% of his passes. And Daywood Davis and Malachi Corley are a great one, too. I think people worried when Mitchell Tinsley left for Penn State, is Western Kentucky's passing attack going to be as uh, vibrant as it has been the past couple of years? Um, and I think the answer is yes. Western Kentucky is actually top two or three 
in the conference in most of the offensive and defensive categories. So I think they've just really been more a victim of some bad circumstances rather than not playing well. So I think Western Kentucky, uh, after this week, it is going to be a tough one with UTSA. I wouldn't be shocked if they dropped a 3-3, and but I also wouldn't be shocked if they maybe ran the table in the league after that. Yeah, and I mean, you look at Tyson Helton, the job he's done. This is year four, so he went nine and four with a bowl victory in 2019, five and seven with a bowl loss in that COVID season, but they made it to a bowl, nine and five with an appearance in the Conference USA title game last year and a bowl victory. So two nine-win seasons, two bowl victories, and this year they could be playing in another title game. And with Dana Holgerson really catching some ire and to see him blow up at his own fans at home last Friday night. That wasn't a good look. So if Holgo um, goes bye-bye in Houston, Tyson Helton played quarterback for the Cougars from 96 to 99. I wonder if he might be given a shot to kind of move up, so to speak to a UH program, if they've got an opening, whether it's this year uh, coming up or whether it's in two years, because he's been doing some really good things, especially with those offenses at, at Western Kentucky, Wax. Right. I agree. So speaking of the state of Texas, the Lone Star State, my latte team is going to be the Texas Longhorns. Now, they're 3-2, and two, and I actually have them ranked in my top 25. But here's why. They're two losses, one point to Alabama. And who knows, if Quinn Ewers is healthy, the way he was attacking and, and um, defeating that, or that Alabama defense – if they lost by one without him, it's it's not out of the realm of possibility to make the argument that they may have beaten the Tide at home with him. I think he's definitely talented. He's set to come back um, probably this week, and assuming that he stays healthy, their other loss was an overtime to Texas Tech on a fumble from B. John Robinson, a heartbreaking fumble. So it's not like they got blown out. They blew out UTSA. They blew out uh, UL Monroe who I know it's UL Monroe, but they just beat Louisiana last week and, and snapped a, uh, a pretty long um, conference win streak that the, the Raging Cajuns had there. Um, they beat West Virginia, who we said is not a bad football team. So if they get a win over Oklahoma in the Red River game this weekend, they have to travel to Oklahoma State on October 22nd. They get a bye before going to Manhattan, Kansas. They get undefeated TCU in Austin. They have to play at Kansas, but at that point, who knows if the Kansas bubble is going to burst? Who knows what sort of attrition they're going to have to go through? And then they get Baylor in the finale. So I think that this is a Texas team that I'm still calling to make the Big 12 title game. Now, they're going to have to really almost win out from here on uh, going forward, but those wins would come against undefeated Oklahoma State, undefeated TCU, and um, with those head-to-head wins – with one loss in the Big 12 so far, it's not out of the realm of possibility to see the Longhorns playing in that title game in uh, Arlington come December, Wax. Correct. All right, well, let's go to question number four here on cover four. Now, this is moving aside from the whole pumpkin spice latte stuff. Just a fun question. You and I kicked this around last week, Wax, and... Um, I wanted to make sure that we we hit it this week. So our dream broadcast team, you and I have always been big fans of not only college football, but the people who deliver us the game with the art of speech and uh, linguistics and verbal vivaciousness. And so give me your dream play-by-play 
um, analyst or color commentator, and then sideline reporter wax. We'll let you start. And this can be anybody present or past living or non-living wax. So who do you got? Um, I'm also going to give you just one extra. I'm going to give you my favorite radio guy, which sure. anyone who any of the SEC storied uh, pieces, they did one just on the voices of the SEC. Yep. And anyone who's heard Larry Munson loves the guy. We happened to catch him one time. We were coming back from an Ohio State game. One of the fun things about being in the car after the game was we try to get the AM radio somewhere and see what game we could uh, we, we could find. And one time coming back from Illinois, maybe it was because we were near Chicago, we were able to get a Georgia station, and for about 10 minutes, we heard Larry Munson, and we had never heard anyone speaking Southern the way he did, and how much you could just say, okay, this guy is a homer. Normally, I don't like that, but we like this guy. So if it was all-time, all-time personality, it would be Larry Munson. But for the sake of this argument, for, for this exercise, I'm going to go with Keith Jackson. He just was college football. For, for me growing up, he was college football. When there was just a limit, one or two games on a week, you knew Saturday afternoon, Keith Jackson is at the big game of the week. Um, I really like the play by the analysis that Joel Klatt does. Um, not everyone likes the technical stuff. You and I love why does a play work? He diagnoses formations in a way that people can understand them. And he doesn't get too bent out of shape. And he doesn't really criticize guys much. He says why a play worked rather than a defender missed something here. He'll take it from the positive. So I like that. And then I don't have a whole lot of need for sideline people. That's just me. I think they're more of a distraction. But one of the few good ones, uh, I think – a few years ago for CBS was Tracy Wolfson. I think that she was not afraid if there was some controversy at the end of a game, she was not afraid to ask the question uh, about it. And she kind of keep asking until they gave some sort of answer. So I always kind of like journalists like that because to me, sideline reporters are sort of fluff people and I don't particularly love them, but she's one of the few that I said, you know what? She's pretty good. Yeah, I, I like those choices. Going back to Larry Munson, uh, the best call I've ever heard maybe from any broadcaster, TV or radio, was Larry Munson's, we just stepped on their face with a hobnail boot. When yep. David Green hit, um, I can't remember who the receiver was, but against Tennessee and yep. Georgia won for the first time in quite a while. And um, I, I, I just gave myself goosebumps uh, saying that. And I must say, I, I felt like I, I did a decent job hitting the Larry Munson Southern draw there, but um, you know, that that's a great one wax. You um, need to smoke. You need to smoke a little more. He had cigars. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, which is something I, I I'm never going to take up, but uh, yeah, point point well taken there. Um, somebody who I think was vastly overrated and you can, you can dislike me, Michigan fans. Um, but Frank Beckman, um, I, I think that, you know, even being a guy in Michigan to hear people glorify him and, and say, uh, that he was one of the best ever. I, I beg to differ, but I digress from that. So getting to my my dream TV broadcast team, Keith Jackson was great. Um, I think I'm somebody who's kind of contrarian. So because almost everybody says Keith Jackson was hands down number one, I take a little bit of uh, disagreement with that. I really like Brent Musburger. Now, he could be a jerk at times um, with things on the air, off the air. 
And then he kind of got creepy with the whole AJ McCarron girlfriend yeah. thing and the comments he would make about, um, you know, one of the uh, fans at Florida state. So say that what you will, but I, I kind of look at Brett Musburger as kind of like, I mean, Keith Jackson's like the, the grandfather figure that you just love can do no wrong. Musburger's kind of like that entertaining, that fun uncle that sometimes you're like, Oh my gosh, did I just hear what I just, what I thought I heard. Um, but you, you're always listening to what he says and he's still kind of like, you know, he knows what he's talking about and he's got, you know, he's got a good place that he's coming from. And uh, so I always loved listening to Musburger and, um, you know, the way that he would draw out a play. Uh, a lot of people give a lot of props to Gus Johnson. I think he's a little too animated, but Brett Musburger was kind of that that good middle ground between um, more than boring and old fashioned, but not too animated out of his seat. So I, I like Musburger as my play by play guy. I agree. Joel Klatt is great. He doesn't talk down to people, but he he has an uncanny way of reaching the the novice college football fan as well as the passionados like you and I wax, especially when he goes into the the deep dive. So he'll kind of lay it out and, and explain it simply, but then he'll um, give the X's and O's and he'll he'll get into the minutia for people like you and I who really appreciate that. And I agree with you. the The role of a sideline reporter is to give us tidbits that we don't see in the box scores that we that are not at the surface and it's always been a pet peeve of mine when they have um you know somebody who is clearly eye candy and not necessarily somebody who is a fan of the game or somebody a student of the game so i'm going to go with holly Rowe, and i'm not sitting here making any judgments about um aesthetics here but holly Rowe to me is is as knowledgeable as any sideline reporter. I almost went with Jack Aroot in the old ABC days, but Holly Rowe, you know that she she wants to be there and she wants to give you the 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 deep dive stuff. And what I loved about the the ESPN series where they were talking about the celebration of 150 years of the college football game, and they had that panel. Yes. She was one of the few females on that panel, and and I I give total props to ESPN because. Um, it wasn't a token thing. She was somebody who, if I'm listing my top 10 knowledgeable college football personalities, she's definitely there. And, and I would love to meet uh, Holly Rowe someday and to just have dinner or lunch with her and talk to her about college football. Cause I feel like I would have just as entertaining a conversation with her as I would with Brent Musburger or Joel Klatt or any of the other um, men that are in college football. And, you know, I think it goes without saying that it is a patriarchal system and I'm not trying to get political here, but I think it's great that uh, somebody like Holly Rowe can give us all that great information. And if, if I was just reading a transcript, you wouldn't know if it was a former player or if it was a fan, because she's just as knowledgeable as some of those former players who are the analysts or as some of those broadcasters who have been calling the games, um, you know, for years and years. So I, I really yeah, like Holly Rowe. She was definitely in my top three. And getting back to Brent, say what you will, all the points that you raised were good, but he did have the iconic phrase, you are looking live. People still use yep. that now. So if you've got an iconic phrase, you've done something, and you believe, if you don't belong on the Mount Rushmore, you're at least at the foot of Mount Rushmore. So Definitely, yep. So uh, those are great wax. And, uh, you know, I know it's a pastime of you, but one of the things I like doing in the in the off season is going back and watching some of those old YouTube films, not just to see the older teams, but to hear the older broadcasts of yep. Keith Jackson, Brent Musburger, 
um, and some of those other iconic ones, Vern Lundquist for CBS. So, you know, I, I know that we hit the same on that one. All right, fourth quarter, it's time for the picks. Let's do this. You either win me or win, 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 win. So we'll start uh, with, you know, it's Tuesday night. And as we record this tomorrow night, we do have a midweek college football game, which was supposed to be played last Saturday, then pushed back to Sunday. And now it's pushed back to tomorrow because of Hurricane Ian. And that's SMU at UCF, the Knights laying three and a half points. And just to recap, Sully, Wax, and myself all take UCF to charge on, win that game, lay the points and cover it. I'm putting 10 CFP bucks on it. So let's get into the games that are coming up on Saturday. And we start in the SEC, number eight, Tennessee, traveling to Death Valley to take on the number 25 LSU Tigers. The Tigers are a four-point home dog to the high-flying, fast-scoring Tennessee Volunteers. Sully, we'll start with you since you're the SEC guy. How do you like this game shaping up? Well, you know, I've, I've been waiting for Brian Kelly's first big uh, SEC game, and, and now we have it, right? I know he's had a couple already, but now being ranked, playing against a really good Tennessee team who plays on both sides of the ball, uh, you know, quarterbacks up for probably one of the top five Heisman in the race right now. This, this Tennessee team is for real. The balls believe, their fan base believes, the administration believes. I think they got something really special down there, and, and I think that they're going to put a thumping on LSU. I know this is Brian Kelly's first game there as a top 25 ranked team down in uh, Death Valley, but I think he's going to be pretty upset leaving the Valley on Friday on Saturday night. So I'm going Tennessee big. All right. So Sully's got Tennessee. Wax, who do you like? Um, I am going to echo Mr. Sullivan, and I am going to go with Tennessee. I mean, LSU really had to dig down last week to come back and beat a – Auburn team, they spotted them 17 points and ended up beating them. You shouldn't be down. If, if you're a good team, you shouldn't be down to Auburn 17 nothing at any point. So um, I think that they're going to have some issues. We mentioned Jaden Daniels' injuries. He's been getting banged up. Um, they haven't been completely healthy on defense. So even though Tennessee might be is going to be missing Cedric Tillman, um, they're really good against the run. They're giving up less than three yards per carry. And I can't see LSU passing its way to victory in this game. So it's a low number. It's four. I think Tennessee uh, probably wins this by double digits. I'm going to put 20 on this one. All right, taking the big bucks. I am going to go with Tennessee as well, a four-point road favorite. You know, in the past, I would have looked at this and said, well, they're playing in Death Valley. Tennessee has lost five straight in this series. LSU is the better tested team. I think that they've played, you know, a pretty good Florida State team. They beat a an Auburn team that that is physical, at least in the trenches. But Tennessee is averaging 48 points a game. Hendon Hooker, like you talked about, Sully, very efficient. He's number three in pass efficiency in the nation. Um, they've got the number one red zone offense. You touched on it earlier, Wax. They have scored every time they've been in the red zone. They are also playing defense. Tim Banks has that group giving up just 19 points per game, which is 34th in the country. They're pretty good at stopping teams in the red zone as well. I talked about Jaden Daniels. He's been banged up, and I think that the way that Tennessee is aggressively attacking opposing backfields, if, if Daniels goes out for any portion of this game, or even if he's healthy, he's going he's, he's gonna to be facing a defense that um, is going to put pressure on him and 
now LSU has the pressure of keeping up with an opposing offense. They really haven't played an offense that has been like Tennessee. So with uh, injuries on the offensive line, with a non-existent run game, especially when their leading rusher is a hobbled quarterback in Jaden Daniels, even though it's in Death Valley, I like the Vols here, um, laying the four points, covering it. And I am with you, Wax. I, I think it could even be double digits. So I'm going to take the Vols here, minus four. By the way, uh, a recap from last week. Sully was our winner, five and two in seven picks last week, earning 70 CFP bucks, putting him at 185 on the year. Um, Wax, you and I were both three and four. You won 10 CFP bucks. I lost 10 CFP bucks. So on the season so far in 33 games, Sully's our leader at 20 and 13. That's a 61% win clip. Myself, Chappie, I'm at 19 and 14 at 58% success. And Wax is at 11 and 22, 33%. But Wax, we talked about it. It's You've had a lot of close, bad losses. I think that that's going to uh, make a turn here real quick. So we'll allow you to start on our next game. Number 17, TCU, undefeated in the Big 12 and overall traveling to Lawrence, Kansas, where college game day is actually going to be there. How about that, Wax? You doubted. Sully and I had faith in our guys on college game day, and they deliver for us. The Jayhawks, 19th ranked, a five-point home dog once again. So, Wax, who do you like in this game between the Frogs and the Jayhawks? Well, everyone knows about my uh, huge love for Lance Leipold and all things Kansas. Great story thrilled that game day is going there. Kansas can now be crossed off their list of teams that they had never visited. Um, I, for one, am hoping this is a story that can go on all year. However, taking my heart out of it, I think that Kansas, as good as they are on offense, I think they're just average on defense. Last week, they actually did have the defense kind of step up against Iowa State in a low-scoring 14-11 to game. But TCU is just really explosive. I mean, Max Duggan had a 60-yard touchdown pass and a 60-yard touchdown run. They have uh, multiple guys in the backfield. Kendra Miller and Amari DeMarcado um, are both averaging over seven yards per carry. Um, And they've got Quentin Johnston and Darius Davis at receiver. I just think TCU is the better all-around team. And I think this is the week that the Kansas story ends. I don't think it means they are going to just fall off a cliff. I just think that they lose their undefeated status. I'm going to take the Horn Frogs, giving the five on the road. I'm going to agree with you there. I, I want to say that I'm going to be wrong here and that Kansas continues a remarkable season. Um, but I mean, you look at these two teams, they are statistically identical. I mean, you've got two good offensive coordinators, Garrett Riley. Yes, the younger brother of Lincoln Riley is the OC at TCU, averaging 46 points a game against Annie Kudelnicki, the offensive coordinator for Kansas. The Jayhawks averaging 47 points per game. Each defense is giving up 27 points per game. Um, So I think the best play here would be the over 67 and a half. But when you break it down, Uh, The difference here is going to be TCU and their defense is slightly better than Kansas's defense. Now, neither defense is outstanding, but what's worked so well for Kansas this year has been their run game, mainly um, Devin Neal and Daniel Hyshaw and even um, Jalen Daniels, no relation, but Kai Thomas and Daniel Hyshaw are both going to be out this week for Kansas. They're number two and three running backs. So I think that that could play a factor. 
Kansas has a uh, the number eight rush offense in the country, a very good offensive line. They're good at protecting Jalen Daniels. So I think this could be a, a high-scoring back-and-forth affair. But we saw Iowa State had like 20 chances to beat the Jayhawks last week, and Kansas really didn't win that game. They just um, – they gave Iowa State a chance to win it, and Iowa State couldn't pull through with it. I think TCU is much better than Iowa State, and if Rock Chalk Jayhawk almost lost against Iowa State at home last week, I think the the glass slipper shatters this week, and I like the Horn Frogs to lay the five and and beat Kansas. But it'll be great to watch three hours of fandomonium with those uh, those crazies and Lawrence uh, showing their support for the Jayhawks. So give me TCU in this one, Sully. Who do you like? Oh man, chap, you kill me. You know, listen, <laughs> I, Iowa State did have a chance to win the game, but they didn't. So Kansas did win that game. Kansas is a great story, man. They've won two road games this season at West Virginia, at Houston. Those are big wins. And for a young team, yeah. for a coach who's who's just new to a power five system to go and now win on the road at those two places. I mean, those, those are two very credible wins. And you know what? Maybe Iowa State didn't play their best game and they lost by three. But Kansas still won the game. They're still a top 25 team. And it would be a real shame if they go out there on Saturday and lose and get kicked out of the top 25 and only have one week in there. Listen, I think this game comes down probably to the final possession. Uh, we've seen that a lot in Kansas this season. And if you're going to be giving me five points at home, that's easy for me. I'm taking those five points all day. I'll put 20 CFP bucks on it. If you're going to give me points at home for a top 25 ranked team who's shown that they've got the grit, the coach is going to get them ready. It's a noon kickoff. So, you know, coming into that place, hopefully, I assume it'll be loud. There'll be a lot of excitement. I actually think Kansas pulls off a win here. And uh, but if you're going to give me the points, that's easy money. I'll take them. All right. Well, um, and Sully's got 185 CFP bucks. Wax is our leader in the uh, in in the bank with 200, and I'm in third place at 170. But like we said, Sully is the uh, the overall pick champion so far, or the leader, I should say. It hasn't been crowned a champion yet. So Sully taking Kansas there and putting 20 CFP bucks on it makes me makes me think a little bit. But I'm going to still stay with TCU. So let's go out to the Pac-12. We've got ranked versus ranked. Utah with a 4-1 record, ranked number 11, taking on one of two undefeated teams in the Pac-12, UCLA, USC being the other one. Ironically, both are leaving the Pac-12 um, in 2024. But the Bruins are three-and-a-half-point home dogs to the Utes. So I'm going to start with this one. USC um, is next on the plate for Utah. And that's going to be – I mean, that's a lot of people. That was their Pac-12 game of the year going into this week uh, – or going into the season, I should say. Utah has won five straight in this series against UCLA. And even though they threw away their divisions, these were two teams that were matched up in the South. Now, it's a Saturday day game. UCLA seemed to have some juice and excitement last Friday night, but I think that's different. When they have to play a, a noon local kickoff, uh, those fans are not ready for it at that point. They don't show up at that point. So I have a, a big question mark on that. Utah is just an overall good football team. Cam Rising is rising, pun intended. Uh, the run game needs to pick up a little bit, but uh, that, that pass offense is getting it done. Cam Rising is using his improvisational skills to make it hard on opposing defenses. And that defense for the Utes is outstanding. Good red zone defense, number four pass defense. And so they're going against a UCLA offense where DTR has been really good. But I think that once again, he's going to run into a Utah defense that is, has too many athletes and too much physicality for him. And the way he throws his body around, this is a defense you don't want to do that against. So 
um, even though Utah is going to be without Brent Keithy, Brent Keithy and Solomon Ennis, I still like the the weapons that they have on offense and that physical offensive line, but most of all that defense to kind of neutralize UCLA a little bit. I think they they got the win that they were looking for last week. UCLA did. Utah is one of those teams that they're just not there for yet. So I like UCLA. I think that they could be a 10-win team, but give me the Utes laying three and a half coming into the Rose Bowl and getting the dub. Uh, Sully, let's go to you next. Yeah, this is exactly what UCLA needed to be a top 25 team to start 5-0 and with all the talk about them going to the Big Ten and do they belong? Are they going to get their doors blown out out there? They, they need to have a strong season, and that's what they're having so far. But, you know, I do think it ends on Saturday. I think the big difference here is going to be DTI is going to have too many costly turnovers. This is a defense that only allows 150 yards passing a game. Uh, granted, they haven't been playing the best competition, but they have played some good opponents. Uh, I think the difference maker in this, mark this down, Clark Phillips the third, number one, the cornerback, he's going to come up with a big interception. He's already got four in the season. He's going to get a big, timely pick against DTI that's going to seal the game. I like Utah by at least a touchdown in this game. I'll even put uh, 20 CFP bucks on it. All right, and by the way, I forgot to mention, I'm going to put 10 CFP bucks on this on the Utes, and I like that Clark Pil- Clark Phillips uh, forecast there. Wax, what do you like in this game? Um, I'm going to make it unanimous. I like Sully. Um, am impressed with UCLA's season, and uh, but I do think this is a game where big game stakes. Kyle Whittingham usually comes up pretty good. Utah is nine and two against the spread in the last eleven meetings. It's a low number. If this was closer to a touchdown, I would probably be inclined to lead lean toward the Bruins. But um, I think that the ability that Cam Rising has to move the chains with his legs, um, he is a little bit more physical than DTR. As I know that DTR can run, but Cam Rising is almost like tackling another tight end slash running back. He's a big yep. dude, but he can also throw. And um, they still have Tavian Thomas. They won't have Brant Keithy, but they still have Dalton Kincaid. It's not like Utah is lacking for tight ends. Um, right. I just think that that with USC on tap, and, and given what UCLA's record is, Coach Whittingham is not going to let them look past UCLA. So I think Utah goes in, probably wins by about a touchdown, and they continue on their collision course with the Trojans next week. Yeah, and honestly, for me, this is the quarterback matchup that I am going to be entertained by the most. I mean, uh, say what you will about Caleb Williams, but I I love watching Cam Rising and DTR because both those guys are going to do whatever it takes to win the game. And I'm not saying that Caleb doesn't, but I think Caleb is a little bit more of a finesse guy. Cam Rising will uh, lower his shoulder at you. DTR will try and leap you or will – I mean, that was a sick, sick move that he made um, running in for his last touchdown where he basically caused two Washington defenders to collide into each other. I mean, it was just a, a thing of beauty. So I'm, I'm interested to watch these two quarterbacks go head to head. All right, let's go to the big 10 where the, the top game in that conference this week, Purdue coming off a big upset victory against Minnesota traveling to uh, newly named SECU stadium at Maryland, where the Terps are three and a half point favorites and looking to um, run their record to five and one. So Sully, we'll start with you. Do you like the Boilermakers or the Terps in this one? Oh, I'm, I'm all in on, uh, on locks and the Terps. This is, uh, this is an easy one for me to pick. They showed a lot in that game against, uh, against Michigan. And, you know, I know they didn't come out on top. I know it was a late backdoor. 
touchdown to uh, to only make it a seven point game. But I thought they played with a lot of grit. Uh, when Talila got hurt, I think the team really kind of rallied around their quarterback on both sides of the ball. And uh, I think you're going to see them take out a lot of anger and aggression in this one. I think Purdue is a fun team to watch, but I just don't think that they have the firepower on offense. I think Maryland runs away with this one. If I'm only given three and a half, that's an easy one at home. Uh, I'll take the Terps with uh, 10 CFP bucks. All right, Wex, what about you? Um, I am also inclined to go with Maryland. Um, they are 2-0, and and it's a, it's a young series. They've only played a couple of times, but uh, Maryland – has uh, has covered both. Now, they're not typically very good against the Big Ten West, and conversely, Purdue is usually pretty good against the Big Ten East. So if you're looking for historical stuff, it might say to go with Purdue, but something just looks a little off with Aiden O'Connell. He's getting hit a little more this, this year. I know that Charlie Jones coming in has saved his bacon, and he's really been a big-time playmaker for Purdue, but he was in and out of the game last week with a bit of an injury. So if he's not 100% healthy, I think Maryland's defense gets overlooked in the offense that they have with uh, Talia and the good receiving core that they have. But Maryland's defense is sneaky good. And I think because it's a low number and because they're at home, I'm going to take the Terps given the three and a half. All right. Well, I'm going to go against the grain because the way I look at it is these are two teams. One is better than their record suggests, which I think is Purdue um, at two and three. And uh, or I'm sorry, three and two. And then the other, Maryland, I think is not as good as their record suggests. So they're four and one. They Their loss was a close loss against Michigan. But in my opinion, Maryland was really never in a good position to, um, to win that game. Michigan kind of controlled and Maryland stayed in it and they hung around. But Michigan kind of controlled that game. Uh, you're right about Charlie Jones right now. He's the best receiver in the big 10, in my opinion, in terms of, I mean, um, Ohio state's receivers have been good, but in terms of what he's working with and, um, overall value, Charlie Jones right now might even be, uh, the, the, the MVP outside of CJ Stroud for any team in the big 10. Uh, you can make an argument for Blake Corm as well, but, uh, Purdue's defense, I like their secondary. I like their pass rush. Statistically, they're not putting up um, eye-popping numbers, but they're getting the job done. And, you know, this is a big game for Maryland. If they win this here, they have Indiana and Northwestern in their next two games. They could be 7-0 and going into a bye. Um, the last time that happened, I think, was when Ralph Friedgen was there and they had that 10-win season with Sean Hill at the quarterback, and, and they went to a, a New Year's Day bowl. But, uh, you know, I, I'm still not sold on Mike Loxley being a coach that can have that kind of success just yet. I am sold on Jeff Brom, especially when he's an away dog. He's 10 and four as an away, uh, you know, as an away underdog. And so because of that, uh, originally my instinct told me to pick Maryland. I'm going to go against my instinct in this game. I want to stay away from it. But since we're picking it for this show, give me Purdue to be a three and a half point underdog and winning on the road and kind of bursting Maryland's uh, momentum right now. All right, let's go to the ACC. Florida State, uh, they were ranked last week and dropped out after a uh, loss to Wake Forest in a game that Sam Hartman and the Deeks really controlled. They're traveling to Carter-Finley Stadium in Raleigh, North Carolina, where the NC State Wolfpack had everything in front of them to, to, us, you know, to, uh, to vault themselves into great things, but they dropped – a game against Clemson, a game that Clemson really controlled. 
The Wolfpack are two and a half point favorites here against the Knolls. So Wax, we'll start with you. Who do you like in this one? Um, I think because they knew that it was some of it was obviously Clemson's defense, but some of it was just some, some silly plays that NC State made. I think that they're going to be kicking themselves and they're going to take it out on a Florida State team that while they're good, I don't think they have the difference makers and athletes on defense that Clemson has. And I think that NC State is going to put up a few more uh, points this week and a few more yards. I know that Devin Leary wasn't happy with his passing and he had guys who weren't catching the ball. I think they're going to get that uh, under wraps. They're 16-4-1 ATS in this series. It's a low number. They're back at home. I think that the Wolfpack, um, I think it's fairly comfortable, actually, that they cover the two and a half. I'm going to I'm gonna put uh, 20 bucks on this one. Yeah, I like that, too. I'm going to put 10 CFP bucks on NC State covering the two and a half. Um, to your points, Wax, NC State has won 13 straight at home, 15 of the last 16, 30 of 36 in the last five years. Those numbers right there, combined with the fact that they are um, not happy that they fell short against Clemson, I don't think it's a, a hangover that counts against them. I think it's something that's going to uh, propel them to stay focused and still a lot of goals ahead of them. And really what it comes down to is um, Florida State clearly has the better offense. NC State is not holding up to their expectations offensively, but NC State has a better defense and when you compare those two strengths, I like NC State's defense better than I like Florida State's offense. So that's why I'm taking the Wolfpack to lay the two and a half and, and beat the Knolls this weekend. Sully? Yeah, we're overthinking this one, right? I think, I think this, is a typical, <laughs> this is a typical Vegas trap. Typically in football, the home team automatically gets three points, right, if they're the home team. So this is only a two and a half point spread which tells me Vegas knows something that you don't know, that Wax doesn't know, that I don't know. And I don't know what that is, but I've lost way too many times to Vegas. I've lost way too many times to the books with <laughs> sucker points like this, two and a half points at home. I don't care who's playing quarterback. I don't care who's a coach. I don't care if both teams lost last week and they thought they were going to win and they show up all fired up. Vegas always wins in these situations. I'm going with them. I'm going with Florida State. I'm taking two and a half points on the road. They know something that I don't know. And you know what? I've lost way too many times in Vegas, so I'm not putting any money on this one, but I'm fairly confident <laughs> that they know something I don't know. And that's a great point, Sully. Um, something that I'm definitely going to have to take into consideration moving forward. So, uh, you know, Sully speaks once again, and we love it. Let's go to the Pac-12. Uh, two more games here. So Washington State traveling to the Coliseum to take on the number six USC Trojans. Um, Trojans fresh off a victory against Arizona State at home last week. A lot has been made about how uh, solid, quote-unquote, that they are. The Trojans are laying 13 as a home favorite against Washington State, a Washington State team that is 4-1. and one. So I'm going to start off here. Uh, hear this. Washington State's defense is a lot better than people like to think. And I know that there's a lot of eyeballs that don't really watch the, the Pac-12 games. They don't really follow teams. And Washington State, their only loss was to Oregon at home in that crazy comeback where they scored 29 points in the fourth quarter, Oregon did. So aside from that, you know, they went on the road and beat uh, Washington State. They, they've taken care of business against the other teams on their schedule at home, including a 3-1 and one Cal team. Uh, while Washington State is not uh, moving the ball offensively like a lot of people expected them to with um, the Incarnate Word transfer uh, at quarterback, and with a, a new offensive coordinator. So Cam Ward is the, is the guy we're talking about at quarterback. Um, I like Washington State's defense. 
they're number seven in the country in sacks, number four in tackles for loss. Uh, however, USC is is playing almost flawless football in terms of turnovers. And Wax, I know that you talked about how that's not sustainable, but given what they've got offensively with Caleb Williams, with uh, Travis Dye, with Jordan Addison, Taj Washington, Brennan Rice, and the way that they're getting after quarterbacks, um, I mean, USC's defense is playing a lot better than people think. They've had 12 interceptions. They um, have, they're averaging nearly four sacks per game, which is number five in the country, and they're number three in red zone defense. So when opposing teams are getting close, uh, Washington State has had trouble scoring in the red zone relative to their competition, and USC is doing a good job stopping it. So even though that's a big number, 13 points at home, I like the Trojans to cover here. And keep in mind, they've got Utah next week. So that kind of scared me a little bit. Maybe I'm overthinking this, but I like the Trojans to to cover the 13 here. Sully, what do you like? I feel like any time the Washington State had an upset like this, uh, whether it was Minshew or whoever the quarterback was, it was one of those random Friday night games in the middle of the season. Playing on a Saturday later in the evening, I don't think this is an upset uh, special no. here. I think this is a, a pretty good spot for Lincoln Rally and the and the boys that he bought. You know, you look at uh, <laughs> the past couple of weeks and, and yeah, they, you know, they went on the road and, uh, and almost slipped up against Oregon State, but then they came down, bounced back really well against Arizona State. I think the big thing here is what did Caleb Williams do last week? He threw the first interception of the season, the first turnover on the USC offense. Uh, meanwhile, Washington State is minus four in the turnover battle. That plays big into this game. Uh, I, I think it's probably a close one throughout the first maybe three quarters. A late turnover in the fourth quarter ends up making this probably a 20-point game. So I like USC pretty handily. I'll put uh, 20 CFP bucks. All right. Wax. Um, I'm going to be contrarian. I think that USC wins the game. But I think Washington State has the type of defense that can make USC, that can slow the game down. Washington State does not want to face a lot of tempo. And they've got – USC has the ability to do that with Caleb Williams and with the guys he has out wide. Um, I think that they will have his chance to, if not get to Caleb Williams, certainly disrupt him with the rush off the edge. And I also think that um, I think this could be similar to Oregon State. In terms of the makeup of Washington State's defense, they're a bunch of physical guys, not a ton of what you'd call blazing speed, but they play in a way that the opponent gets frustrated. And that Oregon State game came down to the final minutes and USC only scored 17 points. So I think USC wins the game, but I think this is an awful lot. And I think that Washington State probably loses this one by about eight or nine. So I'm going to go um, with the Cougars on the road to, uh, to, to, to stay within the thirteen. All right, well, let's get to our last game on the docket, and that is our Group of Five special. So we've got Western Kentucky at 3-2, and two, traveling to the Alamo Dome to take on the Roadrunners of UTSA. The Roadrunners are four-and-a-half-point favorites. So I'll start off with this one. And, and um, you know, I like this game because you've got two pretty good offenses. You've got Western Kentucky averaging 47 points a game. You've got UTSA, who is averaging um, – um, looking for the number there. Oh, uh, 35 or I'm sorry. Yeah. 35 points a game, I believe. So, um, it's, it's offense against offense and two pretty good quarterbacks, Austin Reed for Western Kentucky, Frank Harris for UTSA. And originally I, I kind of like the road runners. This is a rematch of last year's COSA championship, 
but we talked about it in the previous segment wax about Western Kentucky. They, they lost a tough one last week against Troy, but it wasn't a conference USA game. This one is uh, UTSA is coming off a, uh, a pretty convincing victory over middle Tennessee. Although the blue Raiders tried to stay with it. One thing that concerns me about the Roadrunners is they're starting to get a little too much swagger and that's leading into some um, unnecessary penalties and it's almost like they're getting ahead of themselves over their wheels. And where we have Western Kentucky and the progress that they're making, their close losses this year, um, I think that they're going to be primed for this one. And, and I really think that UTSA um, might think that they have a, a foregone conclusion and just kind of crowning themselves as the champions or seeing themselves as reigning champions. So I know that's not a lot of statistical analysis, but the feel I get for this if Western Kentucky is a four and a half point dog in a, in what I think is going to be a dog fight, especially offensively, I think they're going to match score for score. I like the Hilltoppers to beat the four and a half point spread as a dog here going into San Antonio. So give me Western Kentucky here plus four and a half Sully. Well, Chabby, listen, you do a great job putting these picks together, but I'll tell you, you missed the best pick on the board. UConn is giving five points at FIU UConn. I don't know if I've ever seen UConn being a favorite in a, in a game in 10 years. And now they're all suddenly given five on the road, which is pretty cool. Uh, but listen, you, you look at the uh, – we didn't even talk about Oklahoma and Texas. That's a 65-point over-under. This game here with West Kentucky and UTSA is at 72-and-a-half, which means yeah. there's going to be a whole lot of scoring. And when there's a whole lot of scoring, it comes down to one of the last couple of possessions of the game, comes down to a late turnover, comes down to a block kick. Anything can happen in a game like that where there's going to be – probably at least 30, 40, probably, I would say probably 40 points on each side of the ball. I'm taking the points any day of the week with that. If the game ends in a field goal, you win, you walk away, you cash. So I'm definitely going to go here with the points. Pretty confident in this one. I'll put another 10 bucks on it. All right, Wax, finish us off here. Uh, I am going to go with the visitors. Um, I think that we know that both teams are explosive on offense, but Western Kentucky has the better defense they do a better job of hanging on to the ball. You kind of mentioned UTSA's problems with penalties. They've also become a little bit turnover happy uh, the last couple of weeks. And for a team that is as physical as UTSA likes to be, they've actually given up quite a few big plays this year. And Western Kentucky is a team that thrives on that with the guys I mentioned before with Austin Reed and Daywood Davis and Malachi Corley. So I think Western Kentucky not only goes in and stays within the points, I think Western Kentucky wins the game outright. I'm going to put 10 bucks on the Hilltoppers. All right. So, um, again, a reminder that uh, tomorrow night or Wednesday night, whenever you're listening to this, um, we've got SMU at UCF on ESPN2. So a, a nice AAC conference matchup. And, um, you know, that's going to be interesting because you've got Gus Malzahn, the teacher, coaching against his pupil, Rhett Lashley, um, they've worked together and now they're going against one another. So I think that's a reason why the Knights are the one to, to go with there. So once again, this has been the CFP podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Chappie CFB, at CFFM Waxman and at CFI underscore Sully. Also check out our site online, CFPCollegeFootball.com, where you'll get great knowledge of college football from the experts. So reach out, hit us up with any and all takes. We like the banter because we love the sport. Thanks for helping us live what we love. And all we ask is you keep listening and spread the word and help us rise above. For Wax and Sully, I'm Chappie. Enjoy your passion. Good night, everybody.